I'm Alex Wong, and the Wong Takes start now. Hello. It is December, first show of December. We're back on Tuesday. Feels great to be back, December 5th, 2017, and the Wong Takes are here. Uh, I've got a new plug, actually, to start, because in the end of this show, I do all the plugs to the website, stuff like that. I've got a new one. Um, I don't know why I've forgotten to mention this, but rate the show on iTunes. Uh, five stars if you like it, less if you don't. Any feedback is great. Also, I think that's how you move up the charts in iTunes. So rate the show. Anyway, let's get to the action from this week. First off, a college football playoff preview. Now, this is going to take a while because there's a lot to talk about, but let's get started. Uh, notes from Selection Sunday. I think first off, we're going to start with that. Uh, the conference champions took a huge hit when these rankings were revealed because Alabama got in over Ohio State, so that shows just winning the conference, and that already got shown last year when uh, a two-loss Penn State conference championship conference champion, excuse me, didn't get in. But again, this just repeated uh, thing where like they're not going to put in conference champions just because you won your conference. It's not going to do it anymore. And also, a non-conference champ, uh, Wisconsin, who had a weak strength of schedule, actually got the number six spot in the most recent rankings over. USC, a conference champion out of the Pac-12, who had the 11th best strength of schedule in the country. So pretty much, conference championships, they, they say that they mean a lot, and the committee does, and of course you have to say that, because like, why else would you want to compete in your conference championship game? But th- they've really said that, at the end of the day, it really doesn't mean much. I know after four, it doesn't mean, it's not as significant as getting in the top four, but USC getting put at eight below a three-loss Auburn team and a Wisconsin team that really didn't have that good of a resume just shows how little conference championships matter in the grand scheme of things. Also, we saw that the committee was willing to put the best team, because I think I think most people will agree that Alabama's better than Ohio State. They put in the best team over the most deserving team because Alabama lost a game and they didn't make their conference championship game, whereas Ohio State, despite having two losses, had a, had played more tough opponents and ended up winning their conference championship game. So I think the committee is showing that pedigree still matters. Like, Alabama's pedigree is what got them into the playoff. It's not necessarily anything they showed this year, because even though they were dominant in a lot of the games they won, that, that doesn't mean they were playing good teams, and they should have dominated a lot of those teams anyway. So they're showing, again, that you can put in the best over the most deserving. And also, what's good about putting Alabama in, actually, is showing that every game really still matters in college football. So... Putting a one-loss Alabama team in over a two-loss Ohio State team, despite it reducing the stock of conference champions and necessarily beating more better teams, you still have to try to win every game. Like, Ohio State's bad loss really ended up costing them in the end, and we saw that because they lost to Iowa by, what, 30, 31 points? That's an unranked Iowa team. And the worst loss ever from a college football playoff team was, still was and is still 14 points. So their committee is showing that one game still can end your season, or two bad games can still end your season, and that winning still matters, which I guess is a good precedent to set. But the committee was kind of in a lose-lose situation here, because we talked about both sides, where if you pick Alabama, you're saying that winning matters, but conference championships, conference championships don't, and vice versa if you pick Ohio State. So kind of an interesting situation for the committee. And also, going back to the whole every game still matters thing, no two lost teams have made the playoff. Auburn was a really close was really close to making the playoff this year, but Auburn just had a really impressive resume, like beating Georgia, beating Alabama, and then they would have had to beat Georgia again. So that I think is kind of a two-loss team that just breaks the mold. 
But when you have a team like Ohio State this year or Penn State last year where it's a two-loss team, but they're on the edge with a one-loss team that maybe isn't as uh, good as them or doesn't have as good of a strength of schedule as them, it doesn't matter. They're going to put the one-loss team in. And I guess that's good to say to teams, look, you still in strength schedule metrics and everything, you still have to win. And at the end of the day, I think that's a good thing to say. Now, on to the matchups themselves. So we're going to start with number one Clemson versus number four Alabama. Wow, what a matchup. Uh, for starters, Clemson coming in here on fire. They're a juggernaut. Kelly Bryant has really come, uh, come to life as the starting QB for Clemson. He found his rhythm in the last couple of games this is against South Carolina, against Miami, where he dominated both of those teams. And in fact, against that tough Miami defense that's well, well, well known for their turnover chain, he actually completed his, the first 15 passes he threw, which is pretty remarkable that you can find those seams and deliver the ball accurately every single time for 15 times. And also, there, he didn't throw any picks against the turnover chain team. Another remarkable feat. And I, I really feel for him because it's, it's really tough to follow a guy like Deshaun Watson because what are you supposed to do? Like You can't be Deshaun Watson. You have to be Kelly Bryant. But if you don't match the expectations and the precedents that have been set at Clemson, you're going to get beat up on by the media. You already have the target on your back from being last year's national champions. So it's been it, Kelly Bryant's done a really good job over at Clemson. And he's helped by his variety of weapons. The, his wide receivers are really experienced. Guys like Ray Ray McLeod, Hunter Renfro, and Deion Kane. All three of them are juniors, which means they played last year with Deshaun Watson. They played two years with Deshaun Watson. They know what it means to win. They know how to win because they won the national championship last year and got to the game two years ago. So they know this format. They know how to pace, pace themselves. They know that one loss isn't the end of the world. Two might be, but one loss, especially even though it was like a fluky loss to Syracuse, it just doesn't mean that much. And also their running back, Travis Etienne, who's really provided explosiveness in the backfield to open up throwing lanes for guys like McLeod and Renfro, who's really come into their own. Now, as far as Alabama... They're, I think they'll be better in this playoff. Their, their ranking is number four, which is not that good. But I think they're going to show better than that because some of their weak strength of schedule, which was a big point against Alabama getting into the playoff, I think they can't be blamed for a lot of that because teams like Florida State and LSU. So Florida State, when they, when they played Alabama in the first game of the season for both teams, we hailed this as like one of the greatest matchups ever in playoff or in uh, one of the first greatest opening day matchups in college football history. And it ended up being, like, the Florida State ended up winning six games. And part of that is because Alabama injured uh, Florida State's quarterback, but part of that is just because Alabama demoralizes a lot of teams. And the same thing with LSU. We thought LSU was going to be good, and they ended up not being that bad, but the loss to Troy kind of disqualified them in the minds of many people. So Alabama can't be blamed for a lot of their scheduling. It's not like they tried to have a weak schedule. They've just beaten up on the SEC, which makes it look worse. But as far as on the football side of the field, Alabama's defense is going to have time to recover for this Clemson game. So middle linebacker Mac Wilson and two other outside linebackers that they had lost will be back and healthy, which is really going to help their pass rush, which is going to help them get to Kelly Bryant and really impose their will on teams, which is what we've, we're used to seeing them do in the past and in the playoff when they win. Plus on offense, this Alabama team is actually kind of underrated. Jalen Hurts, their quarterback, who is not a rookie quarter, not a freshman quarterback. He, was, he was, got to the championship game with them last year. He's quietly put up a really good campaign. His touchdown and interception ratio is only is 15 to 1, which is pretty remarkable even though he's not getting the numbers of a guy like Baker Mayfield or even Kelly Bryant. He's still efficient and he can protect the ball, which is what you need to do against an explosive offensive team like Clemson. 
And that's really going to help them stay in the game, especially if they can dominate the ball. If they can keep Clemson's defense on the field, they can really wear them out and, once again, impose their will. That's what Nick Saban teams normally do. And speaking of Saban himself, he really comes into this game with something to prove, which is not good for Clemson. Because they barely squeaked in the playoff, and you've got all these people saying, look, Alabama shouldn't be in, Alabama shouldn't be in, they're not, they're not the better team, they don't deserve to be in. Well, if Alabama comes out and beats Clemson 35-3, to people are not going to be doubting them anymore. So I think Clem or Bama comes in with that chip on their shoulder they're not used to having. That's just extra motivation for that team to do better. And also, this game is going to be fun because these defenses are both great. Alabama was second in total defense. Clemson was sixth in total defense. And they're also these lines as hallmark is they're really tough defensive lines. So these QBs are really going to be tested as far as escaping the pocket and running around. And also familiarity is going to be interesting with this matchup because this is the third year in a row that they meet in the playoff. And the young history of the playoff, that's pretty remarkable. You're not going to see that much anymore. So these teams really already kind of know how to plan for each other. These coaches already kind of know what they're going to see, even though it's a new year and, and of course, talent turns around in college. But nonetheless, you're going to see a lot of the same stuff. And since they already know how to plan for each other, I think that's going to lessen some of the talent gap you might have seen otherwise where Clemson has been a really dominant team and Bama hasn't. And it's really, at the end, just going to come down to who's going to be better on a given day, who's going to be better on, the, on New Year's Day. And also, I think that the experience of both of these teams means that this could almost be a de facto championship game. I mean, I like Oklahoma and Georgia. Of course, they made it to the playoff. They're talented teams. But it's going to be tough for either of them to beat an experienced Clemson or, or Bama team. With that said, let's talk about the other game. Wow, we are talking a lot about college football. This might end up taking 20 minutes, but anyway. Uh, you've got two phenomenal offenses squaring up in this two-versus-three matchup. First, got Baker Mayfield, who's a Heisman candidate. He might win the Heisman this Saturday. Probably won't talk about it because I'm about to talk about him now. Uh, he threw for over 4,000 yards this year, which was actually the 87th best passing season in college football history, which might not seem that remarkable, but considering the number, te number of teams in college football and the number of seasons college football has been around, like a, de a century and a half, it's pretty remarkable. Also, he was 20 points above the second-highest quarterback as far as passer rating goes, which is a stat similar to the NFL's passer rating, which takes into account completions, yards, touchdowns, and interceptions. He was 20 points above the second-place QB in that stat. 203 uh, passer rating versus 182 passer rating, which it kind of shows you how far he is above his peers. And he was 30 points above the next highest power five quarterback in passer rating, just a stat that kind of shows you how dominant he was this year. And I also like him because he passes the eye test. I mean, that's a lot of thing, like for guys who don't like analytics, it's just like, do you like this kid? And yeah, he's known for his big plays. He threw multiple 50 yard passes in the conference championship game. So that's that flash that you like to see from guys. And he has swagger. I know that's kind of like an overused word, but like he really does. He planted the flag. He has that like character that you want to see from a leader. And he has it in his intensity because even though it can come back to him at times like the Kansas game where he got a uh, got tossed from his captainry for like doing gestures and things, uh, you want to see that intensity sometimes, even if it can come back to bite you. And as far as Oklahoma's in this game, Oklahoma's run game is going to help them a lot because. You saw Rodney Anderson over 150 rush yards in the Big 12 championship game. And we've actually got a contribution from our college football analyst, Michael Kilcullen, who said that Anderson was really tough to bring down in this game and took the pressure off of, pressure, uh, off of Heisman candidate Baker Mayfield. So that having that good run game, it, it, helps, every, it helps the entire offense because you, you boost the morale of your team, your offensive line, plus you open up passing lanes to throw to for Mayfield, and it sucks up the defense because they have to play the run for deep throws like with a guy like Mayfield. I think the big question for this Oklahoma team is going to end up being what can their defense do because 
We saw that talent. We saw that they limited TCU to 37 points in two meetings, which against a really talented Big 12 team is tough to do. But their rushing defense is only 45th best in the country, and they're facing the ninth best rushing offense in the country in Georgia. It's going to be tough for them to stop them again. And speaking of that rushing attack, let's flip over to the Georgia side and talk about them a little bit. So Georgia's got a multi-pronged rushing attack, which I really like, where you've got two seniors, Nick Chubb and Sonny Michelle, and their experience is really going to help them. I think it's underrated a little bit, having, having that knowledge, having the knowledge of not only the football landscape, but your system so you can execute it well. And they've had a whole year this year, their senior year, to learn how to balance their workload, and that's going to help too. And they both had over 900 yards this year, so it's not like they're splitting carries and being ineffective. They're huge backs, and they're really going to help Georgia win this game if they do. However, I think the one place where they can struggle on this otherwise really talented offense is with at the quarterback position, where they've got a freshman quarterback, Jake Fromm. He only had three games of 200 or more passing, t- passing yards this year, so against a, tough, uh, against a really good offense in Oklahoma, you might have to keep up. It might be tough. And he and the offense did put up 28 points in the SEC championship game, but I think they mostly relied on their running backs and turnovers, crucial turnovers by Auburn. So he hasn't really proven himself that much yet, and it's going to be tough to see against his Oklahoma defense if he can carve them up like he hasn't really been able to do against the tough SEC powerhouses. And as far as the Georgia defense, it's going to be a tale. There's a tale of two defenses. We don't know which is going to show up because there was the one that got burned by deep throws against Auburn in the first meeting, which is going to come back to really bite them against Oklahoma, who we just talked about, known for big plays. Or is it going to be the Georgia defense that holds the hottest team in the country, which, again, was Auburn, to 259 yards of total offense, and they limited Heisman candidate Carrion Johnson to 44 yards on 13 rushes and a fumble. So I don't know if we're going to get that Georgia defense that's able to stuff them or the, the Georgia defense that got exposed on big throws. I think it's going to be more... I think we might see, we're going to see them stop them for the most part, but there are going to be a few deep throws just because of the unfamiliarity of a Big 12 versus SEC matchup. But I like how this is going to play out. I think it's going to be a close one. I think all these are going to be a close one. Watch the college football playoff, people. Wow, that was a long time. Without further ado, let's get to the NFL. Uh, I don't still, I'm not 100% sure how we're going to do the whole playoff picture. Maybe next week we'll start looking at the broader playoff picture. But for this week, we've got two games on the docket. First of all, Vikings 14, Falcons 9. This was an interesting game. It was all about the Vikings defense, of course, limiting the Falcons to no touchdowns in that explosive offense. They really limited the Falcons' run game, actually, even though Devontae Freeman came back. I think that partially had to do with like figuring out the game plan with having him back after so long with him and Tevin Coleman and even guys like Taylor Gabriel. And how do you split touches? And what Vikings did also, a big key, was stopping big plays, where their cor- and their cornerbacks really did a good job locking up those receivers and they limited the longest pass to only 20 yards, and the longest run of the day was only 13 yards. So with such explosiveness, it's, it's, we're going to have to watch the Falcons to prove themselves and how they, if they can methodically move down the field. And the secondary that talked about the cornerbacks did a great job, the safeties did a great job. They forced Matt Ryan to spread the ball around. Because Julio Jones, a, th- a few weeks back, had, I think, 12 catches for 250 yards. But in this game, no Falcon got more than six targets, nonetheless six catches, and those two guys were Julio Jones and Tevin Coleman. So I think the, the Vikings' defense is just gonna is gonna lead them, and it's gonna help guys like Case Keenum, who hasn't really been in a winning situation before, help him just adjust to this. And the Vikings, speaking of them and Case Keenum, Case Keenum had a hundred one hundred twenty point four passer rating in this game, which is a little bit under the maximum passer rating, and he had two touchdowns, no INTs. So even though the stat line wasn't the best, he still had a great passer rating. 
And also we had a 15-play, 8-minute drive to end the third quarter, which is I think was one of their longest drives of the season. And that's the kind of drive you want to see from Case Keenum and the Vikings where you didn't really see that from the Falcons. You didn't see them march slowly down the field where you used to see them big plays. But when, when you need those type of like those tough, pounded drives because it keeps possession, keeps your defense off the field, and it helps you win the game. And they now have an eight-game winning streak, the Vikings do, which is tied for the second longest in the league this season. And that's not anything to overlook. I think this Vikings team is one of the best teams in the NFL. The Falcons, meanwhile, are now in the playoff bubble with this loss because they, they're in a tough division. They've got two teams in front of them, with New Orleans are two games in front of them at 9-3, and three, and Carolina's one game in front of them. So I don't know if they're going to win their division. I like this New Orleans team with the dual-back system and all. And they're going to have to fight with a bunch of good teams for that for that last playoff spot, the last two playoff spots. Seattle, Carolina, Dallas, Green Bay, and Detroit, those are all tough teams that some of them know how to get it together, and especially with Green Bay getting Aaron Rodgers back soon. That almost, If Brett Hundley doesn't lose it for them in the next few weeks, that almost guarantees them a playoff spot. So I am worried about this Falcons team, but it's going to be interesting down the stretch. The other game that I'm going to talk about is the Seahawks beating the Eagles 24-10. to This was a fun one to watch. It's another great performance from the Seattle defense at home. They forced punts on three of the Eagles' four first-half possessions, which against this offense, one of the best in the league, is pretty interesting to see. And they also forced key turnovers. That's what the Seattle defense is known for. They're not the same legion of boom that they've been in the past, but they're still really good. They forced a fumble on their own one-yard line at the beginning of the second half that prevented a touchdown, and also two turnover on downs in Seattle territory in the second half. So getting those key stops is something we're used to seeing from Seattle, and we saw it in this game as well. And they also had an interception to end the game, so of course that's crucial. And their only points were really on a few deep throws that were just breaks in coverage where you had Carson Wentz scrambling and maybe the cornerbacks were out too long and you're bound to find an open receiver at some point. So we saw Seattle's defense lock, uh, lock Philadelphia up for virtually this entire game, which is pretty hard to do against a talented quarterback like Carson Wentz. Speaking of talented quarterbacks, you got Russell Wilson in this game doing what he's used to do. He's pressured all game. It is a tough day for the Seattle O-line. But he escaped frequently, and he made the most of his opportunities. Cause, and I, I, it's really interesting because when Russell Wilson completes these downfield passes, that's really demoralizing as a defense. Because, like, look, we did all we could. We spent 10 seconds. We, we guarded everyone we could. And, look, this one guy creeps out in the flat, and it's boom, it's a 50-yard gain just because everyone's so tired. It's, it's something that it's, it's hard to do as a defense. I think that's part of the reason Seattle's been so successful as opposed to a pocket passer. That, that's able to throw deep and break you down. It's just a whole other animal when you've got a running quarterback as well. And also, he used his creativity. We saw that maybe forward lateral on third down for a big game, but it shows that the Seahawks, they can still find ways to win. Even if they're not as good as they were in the past, they're still a tough team, and they're going to use their savvy to find ways to win. And as far as the Eagles, this was their first loss since September 17th, causing them to fall to second in the conference behind the Vikings, and they face another tough test next week in the Rams. So this is going to be a crucial sequence for Philadelphia to see where they stack in that ladder of the NFC. I still think they're maybe the second or third best team in the NFC behind. I like the Vikings. I actually I still like the Rams, even though they don't have much playoff experience. So it's going to be tough for the Eagles with their young quarterback. We'll see how he can handle the pressure, but I expect them to win a game or two in the playoffs. Now we're going to do a uh, non-football topic for the first time in like a week and a half. We're going to talk about the Oklahoma City Thunder who struggling, who are struggling and they're playing tonight. Uh, I don't know where, but I know they're playing at 5. I don't know why I know that. 
So anyway, uh, the Thunder, don't forget, if you did, they acquired Paul George and Carmelo Anthony over the summer. Of course, big signings when you have superstar players of that caliber. And despite all of that and having Russell Westbrook and Steven Adams and their talented fan base, they have a record of 10-12, and 12, which is a 456 win percentage, not something you really expected from a Thunder team of this caliber. Uh, they're struggling on offense, surprisingly, based on the weapons they have. They're ranked 24th in the league in points per game, which is remarkably low. And I think the issue, because some people are like, oh, there's only one ball. I mean, we, we saw this coming because they just can't share the ball. They can't score and everything. I don't think that's the reason with OKC, because they're unselfish enough. Like, Buzzle Westbrook, you can't average a triple-double, forget, without 10 assists. So he knows how to pass. Paul George is not a point guard. So he And Carmelo Anthony is also not a point guard, though he can be ball-dominant at times. But it's not like they, they, they all just want to get their own ISO shots. They spread the ball well. I think they, they each get about an equal number of shots. I think the, the, the real problem with them is it's getting your shot but in a different setting. Because we, we see, like, it's with the Warriors, when they made their super team, it's like they kind of molded in because Kevin Durant's used to coming off the ball also, even with Russell, or when even when he was in OKC, he's used to coming off the ball. But Carmelo Anthony's not, and Paul George is not necessarily. It's can you move in this system of free-flowing offense as opposed to an ISO-based offense that Melo had, say, in New York. It's also like Russell Westbrook, last year he was kind of just going for triple-doubles, but this year can he balance his drive-and-dish abilities? Because he's going to have so many weapons around the outside. It's a question of can he balance that with getting his own shots. And there's other, and there's other things that we can talk about, about like getting your own shot but in a different situation. And in the grand scheme of things... We shouldn't really be worried about the Thunder because they're only a few games back, I think, as of now, the eighth spot in the Western Conference. And there's no need to panic, excuse me. Um, and the Western Conference also is not as strong as it's been in the past. Like, we've seen years where the Western Conference had, like, the eight best teams in the league. But this is not a year like that. I think we see the Cavs and the Celtics are emerging as the two major powers in the East, like last year. But I think the whole conference as a whole is getting better. In the Western Conference, where you've got new teams and they're struggling to kind of find their mold. And also, with the Thunder, as far as their own playoff chances, the only team I could see passing them and moving them down to 10th or 11th is the LA Clippers, who have lost a bunch of talent, losing Chris Paul, of course, and they're struggling to find their groove. And the only, and I see teams that the Thunder could pass in the standings as well, with the New Orleans Pelicans and the Denver Nuggets. So I'm not worried about the Thunder. I think they can pass those teams and, of course, get in. I'm, I think they're shooting for that five, four, to, four through six range. They're not a top three team, but they're not at the bottom of the playoff standings either. And we've also seen the potential of this team throughout. Like, we're worried about them, but we've also seen what they can do. Like, they blew the Warriors at, out at home a few weeks ago, and that's one of the best or the best team in the league. So we see that they, when, the, when they mold right, they can get their own shots, they're wide open, and it's just, can they hit their shots? And of course, this team can do that. And most recently, after starting, I think it was 8-12, and 12, they barely defeated the young Timberwolves and the old Spurs recently. So they, they, can they can beat these good teams. They can beat the young team, Carl Anthony Towns and all of them, and then they can beat Greg Popovich and Spurs. So they, they've shown their potential. It's not like we, we don't know if they can win on the big stage. And plus, at the end of the day, it's going to come down to their star power. Because that, that's going to help them win down the stretch when you've got these people that know they, they're going to take the big shot. They know they can make the big shot. And that's something that you need in a, in a situation like this. And also in the playoffs, because even though uh, they, none, none of the three really have major playoff experience, but just knowing at the end of the day you can rely on these guys to hit shots is always a good feeling to have. 
So the Thunder are struggling, but they're going to come back. Don't worry about it. Moving on to fan question. We only have one this week, but let's get it. Okay, this one is from Noah. He says, do you think NFL punishments are inconsistent, such as Gronk's, Juju Smith-Schuster's, Crabtree's, Tlaib's, uh, etc.? And yeah, I think I talked about this before in one of the previous episodes. I think it's called Poor Punishments. It's one of the fan questions. But yeah, I've, I have a big beef with NFL punishments just because it's they don't, they're not concrete enough. You don't have rules saying if you do this. And I know the issues often aren't black and white, but I think there can be league minimums. Like if you deliver a cheap shot, it's at least one game or it's at least two games. And that way you don't just leave people in the dark saying... With their, with their subjective opinions saying, oh, he should be suspended, he shouldn't be suspended. You can lay down the law and say, okay, look, we're going to suspend you this amount of much for this amount of much. Like the targeting penalty in the NCAA where they say, if you target, you will be suspended for this half and the rest of next half. The rules like that, like, kind of, you don't really see, you see people questioning the targeting rule, but you don't see them questioning the length of the punishment. Not only because it's a good punishment, but because they have forcefulness when they're saying, okay, look, you're going to be suspended for this amount of time. I think the NFL should adopt that type of rule to keep consistency. And also, these hits like Gronk's and like Juju Smith-Schuster's, I think these should be penalized for longer. I think they each got one game. But I think they should both be longer, at least two games, maybe two, maybe even three games, just because there are multiple facets in which this hurts your league. Not only are these these hits are really dangerous, so you're hurting your players, you're hurting your money makers in a sense. I know this is dehumanizing them a bit, but it's like if from a league's perspective, from an owner's perspective, it's like, look, these are who are making the money for you. Why you should treat them well. And the league has said they value player safety, but even they clearly don't. But also these these hits, they hurt the league's reputation. Like we saw the Steelers and the Bengals last night on Monday Night Football. It was brutal, just headhunting everywhere. It's 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 it doesn't hurt your it doesn't bring in fans. This not this doesn't bring in families that are gonna pass the game down for generations. These bring in like people. Th- this is not what's gonna extend your league. This is not the trend sport is going. So you you have to get these hits out of the game, whether it be through big suspensions that might be questionable at first. Or whatever you have to get these these hits out of your game, so that's the NFL punishment. Yeah, I could yell about that all day, but let's get to the quick take. Uh, Steph Curry, who got an ankle injury, suffered an ankle injury last night. He's going to be out for about two weeks. Yeah, that's a tough loss for the Warriors. I saw this injury last night. Uh, Steph Curry on a closeout rolled his ankle pretty bad, like it turned like 180 degrees. It was pretty ugly. And he, he's out for the game, of, of course, and he's going to be out for the next couple of weeks. Uh, just for him, this is scary for Warriors fans and for all Warriors, just because Steph Curry, at the beginning of his career, ankles were his downfall. Like, that was why he couldn't stay on the court, was because he had ankle injuries. And that's, that's such, for a shooter, that's such a key part of your body. That's where the impact comes when you land. So that, that, this shouldn't hurt his performance in the long term, but it's just tough for everyone to see, and it leaves, the, of course, the opportunity for re-aggravation. But I think as far as the Warriors go, this will be fine because we saw them, well, they lost Kevin Durant at the end of uh, last regular season to an injury, self-inflicted, or with Zazam Chulia. But we saw them go on like a something game winning streak and they were fine into the playoffs. I think they were like 16-2 and two or some crazy record like that. This team, they need to learn how to survive because we've seen the Warriors kind of skate through this year where they haven't really dominated. They're not dominating like they used to. They're kind of letting teams back in or... 
giving or just having to come back from really big deficits. I think they're the only team in NBA history this season they've already done it to come back from two different 20-point halftime deficits and win, but you can't sustain that. There's a reason people don't normally come back from down 20 points. So the Warriors, they're going to need to learn to win without him so that when they get him back and they can reintegrate him and they can be they can run the offense even smoother. I think this injury, of course, no injury is beneficial, but this is, uh, as far as injuries go, one of the less harmful ones. So that's that. Uh, send questions, fan questions. We can have more fan questions next time on the Patreon patron feed or to our email. You can also send uh, questions from our website, bit.ly slash the long takes. Also check out the Patreon, patreon.com slash the long takes. Email the long takes at gmail.com. New plug. Rate the podcast on iTunes and Google Play. Links are all on the website. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next week.